What's an M. Night? M. Night Shyamalan, the Indian filmmaker from Philly. Oh my God, this dude's a big deal. He always you know puts some I mean? like awesome twist at the end of his movies to trick the audience. Oh yeah, yeah, like like in The Sixth Sense, you find out that the dude um, in that hairpiece the whole time, that's Bruce Willis the whole movie. That's not the twist. That's not the twist of that movie. That wasn't the twist. No. You go first. Right. You go. Uh, hello and welcome to the M Night Shift, the podcast where we review and discuss the career of M Night Shyamalan. I'm AJ Gonzalez, uh, video store clerk at Vulcan Video here in Austin, also movie blogger, and my co-host is uh, I'm Brian Connolly. I also work at Vulcan Video here in Austin, Texas, and I'm a co-author of the book Destroy All Movies. Good book. <laughs> so uh, this is about Emma Shemelon. So definitely will be tons of spoilers. We're going to talk about everything. And so if you haven't seen any of these movies, please watch it first or or just be fine having everything ruined for you. If you don't care about twists yeah. and turns being ruined, then great. Yeah, we will be going in chronological order, uh, beginning with his very first movie, which we're starting out with a twist here. His first movie not the sixth sense. Yeah, some people think the sixth sense was his first movie, and that's probably what he wants people to think too. I think he <laughs> went with that, and like I remember when the sixth sense came out, I was all like, "Ooh, who's this guy? Oh, what a this young upstart! His first movie is incredible. Oh, it's made all this money." And they're like, "Wait a minute, he made two more movies before that, many years before that." He had some practice. He had some practice. He had some practice. Uh, yeah. So okay. Do you want to uh, – well, let, let's first talk about this delicious scotch that we're – Yes, sampling. every episode we will have a Shyamalan scotch uh, to help us review the film. And today we're starting out with Cuddy Sark, a nice blended scotch with the inscription, The spirit of adventure lives in us all. It is the courage of our convictions, the mark of true character – and the desire to be different, which I think might fit in thematically <laughs> with uh, with the themes of praying, praying with anger. And it has a nice picture of a schooner on it there, like some of these big fancy yeah. boats. Yeah. So what do you think of this scotch? Have you had this scotch before? I've had it once before. Uh, I like it. This uh, it goes down smooth. It is smooth. Yeah, it doesn't have that like kick as other scotch yeah. have. This is, this is an easy drinking Somebody called us a summertime scotch. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> All right. So, uh, praying with anger. We're um, a movie you cannot get in the United States of America. I don't believe so. We, uh, we watched uh, a bootleg off of uh, what looked to be a British VHS. Yeah, the cover we have at the Vulcan video for it uh, appears to be British. It has the British rating. Of yeah. like 15, I think, on the cover. Also on the cover, the words, like, outstanding debut film yeah. from the American Film Institute. <laughs> it's it's weird that it's 15. Like, I wonder why they decided, like, we're, yeah. we're 13, they're 15, and like, oh, this is good. Like, th this movie felt like a, a definitely a PG-13 movie. Yeah. Like, there was some profanity, but there was no reason it would be an R. But, you know, maybe wait two years till you're 15, yeah. just in case... In, um, in The Man Who Heard Voices, the book about the making of The Lady in the Water, uh, 
all that is said of praying with anger, at least all that I could find going through again, was that this film was uh, self-financed or financed through friends and family and that it screened for one week in Los Angeles, I think, and then was never seen again. <laughs> Very mysterious. And then so the, the book f- goes right into uh, <laughs> talking about the next phase of his career. So I'm guessing it was his decision that it was never seen again. Perhaps, like like Kubrick's first film. Yeah. You know? So let's talk about, um, first, there's two trailers on this tape. I think it's always good to talk about the trailers that warm you up. Warm the audience up for the movie you're about to see. Yeah, it's VHS, so trailers, you forget. <laughs> you have trailers to before sit movies. through the trailers on the VHS. So the first trailer was for a movie called Final Mission. I believe it Corbin Burnson was in it, or someone who looked like Corbin Burnson. I, right? Was that Corbin Burnson? <laughs> I don't remember. And it looked like some weird, not quite Top Gun ripoff, but something where there's like rogue people flying around in jet fighters. There's lots of kind of good early 90s. CG sort of like, uh, like, like yeah, like we like this like, like yeah, weird, like, like uh, this is a computer on the plane sort of thing. And I couldn't tell the plot at all. I couldn't either. It's like sci-fi future Top Gun with some robot jocks thrown in there. Oh yeah, it definitely had uh, a robot jocks feel. Uh, yeah, you could say it was it felt like a precursor to Stealth. Oh, that movie with Jamie Foxx. Yes. And yes, Josh Lucas, maybe the the other smart uh, plane yes. with a with a thoughts movie. Um, so there was that. I felt like <laughs> uh, if uh, Rift Tracks or the new Mystery Science Theater can get a hold of that, uh, everyone will be in for a good time. Of stealth? No. Of, uh, what was this? Final. Oh, final mission. Final mission. Probably also stealth. Stealth is pretty bad. And then the next trailer was for My Life, the first. Uh, Michael Keaton movie I never watched post Batman <laughs> because it is it's just like uh, it looks like it's just a drama where it's like this trailer starts with like him and Nicole Kidman are gonna have a baby and they're the doctor and like you're you're gonna be a dad and he's excited and then the next scene is him at the doctors and the doctors are like you're gonna die of cancer <laughs> and then he's like oh no and so then he makes a video of him like teaching a kid how to shave and I'm sure he I'm, I've never seen it I'm guessing he dies in the end I would imagine so yeah. I remember. Uh, from that trailer, yeah, it seems really heavy, really dramatic. One of the videos he makes is how to, uh, like, walk into a room, like, Fred Astaire style, kind of, like, dancing as you go down the stairs. I remember that from when I was a kid. I don't want to watch Michael Keaton die. That sounds depressing. I like yeah. Michael Keaton. I will, I will prefer him as already undead, like Beetlejuice. I don't want to watch him become <laughs> undead. No. And, uh, yeah, and I couldn't believe it wasn't a Ron Howard movie. It felt like it should be a Ron Howard or, like, later Rob Reiner. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it felt but yeah, it, it I like that. I don't, who made that movie? I don't even know. I didn't pay attention. I don't know. Yeah, I didn't pay attention <laughs> to that. I was shocked that Nicole Kidman was in it. I really didn't have any idea she was in it. I, like, having, having seen that trailer again, I remember, oh, yeah, that was Nicole Kidman. But I was like, I don't know, like six. The first time I saw that trailer, I didn't know who that was. <laughs> they were an interesting choice, choice of trailers for the, for this uh, Shyamalan film. So, uh, praying with anger. Do you want to give a little quick kind of plot? Yeah. So, praying with anger, uh, released in 1991, uh, written, directed, and starring M Night Shyamalan, uh, is about a young man. Dave Rama, who is uh, like 
college age, but people keep referring to him as a teenager, so I'm not clear on that. But he uh, gets into a bad fight in the States, and his mom sends him to India to, uh, it's like, cool off, basically, <laughs> to find himself and deal with his anger issues. It has more or less the same premise as Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> he, he got in one little fight, and his mom got scared. Is that what happened on Fresh Prince? He, what, why did he end up living with a rich family? He got in one little fight, his mom got scared, so she said, you're moving with your auntie and your <laughs> uncle out in Bel-Air. <laughs> But these people aren't his relatives. No, they're, they're not. Like a host family. It's basically he's doing. Uh, Dave Rama is on a, essentially uh, this uh, year abroad program. Uh, so because he still goes to, to school, uh, family in India in Mumbai sponsors him. They have a son his same age, Sanjay, who is his friend and guide through this like so culturally radically different land of India. Uh, they go to school together, they run into bullies together. Uh, Dave meets a like very pretty girl who I can't remember her name. <laughs> that plot ends up being not really that important to the movie. Fizzles out. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it you would think that uh, the story the main thrust of the story would be with him like getting re in touch with his uh, heritage, his culture, learning about his father who died the year before and he's still recovering from that. And so he wants to see some of the places where his father grew up and talk to people that maybe knew him. Uh, but that's not uh, addressed that much, not as much as the scenes of him being bullied and trying to deal with cultural differences, which I guess is where the plot really throws itself into and it has a basic or what is a now basic like young man comes of age finds himself on a you know spiritual almost magical journey he has that's pretty, that's pretty <laughs> much it this does not no twist this no is twist pretty twist the twist is that just this movie exists, probably. Yeah, yeah, that would be the twist. <clears throat> and I noticed uh, when we watch *Beginning Cribs*, there are two other Shyamalans listed as associate producers, yes. which are his parents. Okay. Yeah. So that I'm makes guessing sense. that that's yeah, he had his parents produce the movie, and he was listed as well. They were listed as associate producer. He's listed as produced by, written by, starring, directed. Yeah, yeah you know, Shyamalan. Um, he was 22 years old when he made this movie, so we should wow. all feel pretty bad about what we've accomplished. Yeah, with our that's lives. a year younger than P.T. Anderson at when he made Hard Eight. Yeah, yeah, he beat P.T. Anderson <laughs> by a year. When I was 22, I was a janitor at my father's engineering firm, and I was going to school and was not accomplishing as much as Shyamalan was. I was. I was finishing school and then being unemployed for about seven months before landing a job at, you guessed it, the Gap Outlet. <laughs> but we don't know what Shyamalan's day job was. It could be maybe he worked yeah. at a Gap Outlet and then at, you know, at night wrote the script and then took a month off, asked his boss to take a month off to yeah. go to India to film a movie. And then, because there is a weird gap 
between this movie and the second movie. So he does take like there five, is. six years off. Yeah, like before his next movie. So who knows? You know, like the missing years of Jesus. Like who knows what he does <laughs> at that time? Maybe someday we'll find the answers to that. Um, so the thing that struck me first about this movie, if we can just jump into it, sure. is it was very confusing, like you said, is that he's in college, but they keep calling him a teenager. I guess you could be in college because he's a freshman in college. Yeah. So I guess you could be 18. But he dresses like a like a 12-year-old. <laughs> like he's wet. Like, well, it's weird. He dresses like a 12-year-old, which could also be interpreted as he also kind of dresses like a filmmaker. He dresses up like the guy you'd see the picture of directing the movie. He wears like a baseball cap. He wears a cap a lot. A lot. A lot of scenes. And then, like, some baggy pants, like, kind of this, like, baggy clothes and, like, this cap. So it looks like he's in director mode, but he also is kind of dressed up like like a kid who would visit Jurassic Park with his uncle. And uh, he also acts younger than, like, he's in college, but he's got this, the way he acts, the way, way he is, it really feels like like a 13-year-old in a movie. Like, it really feels like he's one of the three ninjas or something like that. Like, it's, like, <laughs> early 90s, like, gee whiz, oh, gosh, and... Uh, and just really, like, I guess that's him trying to be naive as a character, but it came off as just very odd that he was in college. He, um, at one point, he does also start to wear suspenders mm-hmm. over a t-shirt, which was my look for uh, <laughs> uh, at least one year of high school. I know, I was shocked that he never wore, like, a, like, hip-hop Looney Tunes, like, baggy, oversized XXL t-shirt. It seemed <laughs> like he was, like, going in that direction. Or a giant blossom hat, I was hoping for that, but... Yeah. It was the early 90s. We all had baggy clothes, even Shyamalan. Um, so, uh, yeah, so he comes to India, and he's treated as an outsider, even though he's of Indian descent. Everyone looks at him like he's a foreigner, he's an outsider, and everyone, and I really, I actually like this, everyone asks him if he knows Michael Jackson. At least three times. At least three times. And, uh, like, me being from Texas and then going to college in New York, people asked me all the time if I lived on a ranch, if I like had a gun, if I'd ridden a horse. So I could I could see that how like that w- might be the Indian equivalent of an American going to India. When I went to Germany as an exchange student in the late nineties everyone wanted to ask me about Pamela Anderson. That was like the person I'm like, you're American, Pamela Anderson. And I think Michael Jackson, it was like Michael Jackson, Pamela Anderson, even in 1997, that was the people that everyone wanted to know about. So yeah, he's, he's treated like an outsider, especially by the people in his school, the teachers. Well, well, first off, people think he's like this bully, like, cause they don't really know his whole story. They just, like the rumor is, if he gets in the fights, he has an anger problem. And so the teachers right off the bat are just like, we don't want any troublemakers here. You better not pull the same shenanigans you did in the States. And he sort of just seems confused all the time. of like, what are you talking about? I don't really understand. And he keeps messing up and getting them more mad. Like he doesn't stand when he asks a question, which you're supposed to do. He even questions the syllabus, which gets him kicked out of class. Uh, and he's confused. There's a lot of scenes of him just being confused and people yelling at him and being like, what, what did I do? What am I supposed And like, there's this really great part where he taps the lady he likes on the shoulder and the music gets very ominous oh and she freaks God, yeah. out and she runs away. And it's, it's like a horror movie scene where the music is like really tense 
And he just, again, was like, what would I do? What, what happened? And that's a lot of the movies. It's him like, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to. Oh, gee whiz. And then like his, the, his, the person he's staying with kind of gives him a lesson of like what he did wrong. Yeah. Culture shock, big theme of the movie. So it's not quite like alienation or black rain or gung ho where this American is going to show the foreigners like the right, you know, the right proper way of doing things, the new progressive way. Uh, It's not quite that, but the way that the cultural differences are presented, there definitely is uh, like a lot of... uh, a lot of hesitancy to begin to embrace the way things are done in India. Yeah. He never quite seems into or happy with how things are going. Yeah. So it's not like one of those things where he's like, Oh, I learned this is their way and I'm fine with it. He's kind of always seems apprehensive every time he gets yelled at or is confused by what he's <laughs> doing. Except for when he eventually starts praying, he like accepts that. And he's like, I oh, will. Yeah. Okay. I can, I can get into that. I thought it was weird that uh, there's another uh, thing that throws off of it being college is that the main people that bully him are the seniors, the college seniors who pick on him for being a freshman, which I don't remember happening when I was in college. That seems more of a high school thing. Yeah. It's, and then, and also it doesn't help that these guys are all bearded and look to be about in their mid forties. Yes. They all, they all look very, very grown up. They are all very <laughs> But there's a lot of like, what are you doing here? Ah, smart guy from America. And you're like, this guy looks like he's like 45 years old. <laughs> and uh, and I get, I get, maybe it's a thing, a culture thing I understand. But in this movie, the bullies can walk into the classroom and ask the teacher if you can pick, take the person out of the class to bully. Because that happens. Like the guy, the bull, the main bully shows up and he's like, excuse me, this guy needs to come with me. The teacher's like, you better go. And they beat him up and force him to drink alcohol. So that's weird that you can just like be, I mean, maybe the teachers are afraid of bullies too, but it's weird to take that, that scene where he just walks in and is able to get away with that. It's very odd. That I, I marked down as uh, like weirdest scene. And then I wrote that like two other times. <laughs> what were the other two? The other scenes? two, uh, another one of him being bullied where uh, him and Sanjay, they're just walking home and these two 40-year-old men, presumably seniors, uh, they run up to them, but they kind of shuffle up to them. One of them has a knife, and you think, like, oh, this is going to be, like, a big, like, confrontation. Like, it's going to be a big climactic moment. But they just take their backpacks, dump out their backpacks, and then shuffle away because they're wearing flip-flops. So they can't, like, <laughs> sprint away. They, like, awkwardly <laughs> hobble away. <laughs> And the other was the scene where uh, he plays football, with American football, with a bunch of kids for no reason. Well, he's excited. He, remember, he because uh, so he gets mugged. So then they're like, "We don't have our bus fare." So then they get a like a job that day in a factory, like doing. I don't, I don't even know what they were shucking. They were like shucking some sort of food, and Shyamalan's into it. He's like, "I like this. This is fun." And then they leave, and then they're like, "Oh, we only got paid." 50 cents what a ripoff let's play football and then they did just a scene of him and some kids like playing football very strange very strange <laughs> didn't forward the plot it didn't forward the character not not a lot came from that scene 
And then you have, uh, early on in the movie, a promise of ghosts. You have a part where they're talking about ghosts, and you're like, oh, okay, there's going to be some ghosts in this yes, movie. Sanjay believes in ghosts. A lot of uh, the other characters in the movie, they believe in ghosts in the afterlife. Uh, doesn't really come to anything. Except for the silhouette of Dave's father. The, that was Which was an poorly odd done, because one, it, it came out of nowhere... And it also, it like, maybe it was just me, but it looked like some sex was happening between the shadow and him. Like, the way the shadow moves, it looks like he is, totally is getting filleted by his father's <laughs> silhouette. Which was, like, I was very confused when watching it, being like, wait, I, did I zone out? Did I miss? It's like, is this how they're getting money to get back home? Or something? I'm so lost. Because it's just a shot of a wall, and you see his, sh- his shoulder, and then you see some man's shadow, and then he's kind of ducks down. In the middle of the frame. Yeah, that's, there's a lot of <laughs> odd things going on with that really... scene. One that it just shows up, like, oh, are, are we getting some ghosts and promise of the supernatural, spiritual moment? And it's just like, it's presumably his father's <laughs> head that then moves towards him and like kind of down. Like down. That's, that's like the visual cue <laughs> joke you would make like on a TV show. But I then would... he like abs- like disappears into Dave. Like he absorbs <laughs> his father's soul. Yeah. And then he's like really not as amazed about it as you think he would no. be. He's just kind of like, oh, I guess that was the ghost of my dad. Cool. And like, oh, okay. You think you'd be more, you know, really weirded out by that. But... So it should have been a big moment, but... I mean, he didn't learn a whole lot about his father. At least I didn't as a viewer learn a whole lot about his father. He liked football. His dad liked yeah. football. And and he came from this town. Um, so speaking of that scene not being the best you know, directed scene, in general, the movie is not very cinematic. Like you have a not few really. shots from like a car window while they're driving the bus up. But it's mostly two people in a room talking. Like it seems like every other scene, it like goes to a scene of two people talking, so they can explain to him like what happened in the scene before. So it's like he gets confused, he gets yelled at, he doesn't understand. And the next scene is him in the bedroom with like his roommate, and him explaining like you got in trouble because of this, or we're gonna go do this now. And there's not a lot. It definitely is a long way from the future Shyamalan uh, where you actually have like composed shots. Oh, definitely cinematic. Like this is like. It's really weird because supposedly he was like a huge fan of Spielberg and all these things. And it doesn't seem like he even really tried to make it other than just like having a camera film people doing stuff. There's a few like subtle, not that impressive camera movements. Like at the very beginning when the board, the college board is talking about this new like troublemaker student that they're going to get the camera kind of pushes in around the table in like a, it's visually interesting because there's some camera movement going on, but there's nothing, you know, stylish about that shot. It's just like a basic standard push in. And there's a few other scenes like that where the camera just kind of pushes in, but yeah, nothing very cinematic going on here. Uh, And it's not really like a play either where you just like set the camera down and have the actors do their work because none of the scenes are that long though some of them do feel long especially the scenes with dave and uh the pretty girl he likes it felt like a competently made television show 
Yeah. You know, like it wasn't incompetent and it wasn't clunky, but it just was lacking any, like, like it's not a movie that you would expect would be by someone who went on to make like big movies that the world embraced, you know? It just feels like, oh, yeah, it was fine. It didn't even seem like a movie you'd see at a film festival. It seemed like something you'd have to watch in school. Like the teacher <laughs> would be like, okay, we're learning about other cultures. It's a half day. Here's this movie called we got from the library called Praying with Anger. And you watch it, you laugh at some of the parts, you learn something, and it's over. And like it doesn't really, you know, I think there's a reason why he's hit it. And I think that soundtrack doesn't help. That I thought the score was the worst part of the movie. Because it really is, because it's it's nonstop. It doesn't stop ever, and it's like the most heavy-handed. Like feel this music. It really is just like this is the sad part. This is the happy part. Like it just it's so aggressive, and it just doesn't stop. And it kind of reminded me of either a Canadian made-for-television movie, like that you'd see in the soundtrack they would go on it, or the menu screen of like a role playing video game where you're like picking your weapons and the music just kind of loops like the Zelda song just kind of playing. And it's sort of like, kind of like a nice song, but it's like not really, you know, it doesn't really go anywhere. And it reminded me of that where it's just like the music felt like it was the same song going on for like 20 minutes. And then it would change to be a little more scary sounding or dramatic, but it just, it, I felt like there was hardly any moments of silence. It just kept playing. Yeah all the time music the score did not aid this movie <laughs> um so do you want to talk about <laughs> the performances in the movie so what's interesting um so i always thought and then this is not just performance but it's 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 also just like the character or whatever but like i always thought that Shyam, like because Shyamalan doesn't really act much he only acts in his own movies pretty much He's in an episode of Entourage, and then he's in his own movies. So his biggest role that I've seen before this was in Late in the Water, because before that's more like a cameo. Yeah. And so when Late in the Water came out, and he was in it, and the way what his character does in that movie, and we'll get more into it when we get to the episode, I always thought, like, oh, man, his ego really went crazy after the Sixth Sense and all these hits, and now he has to, like, be this sort of, like, Christ-like character who brings everyone together, who saves everybody. But that happens in this movie. That happens in his first movie. In his first movie, he's like the voice of reason. He's the one who saves everybody. He's he the one who like, peace. brings peace between Muslims and Hindus in India. Like, you know, and and there's not a lot of... Uh, yeah, he just does it. He just does it. And he's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm great. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, so like I don't want to... like. I don't want to attack Shyamalan's performance too bad because he's not—he's not a professional actor. Yeah, I think he was just following like the Spike Lee, like Richard Linklater model, of, like I'm gonna make everything myself and and star in it myself because it's just like me and some friends. So yeah, of course, like he'll he'll put himself in it. But uh, the guy that plays Sanjay is. He's not bad. He's all right. The actors in general are pretty good. Yeah. Uh, for your first movie and for going to another country, and uh, and I'm sure the budget wasn't terribly high, so it's probably a lot of work. But yeah, like it doesn't like it didn't feel like a classic indie first movie. Like it really, it didn't feel like oh he's with his friends in his apartment or something. Like it really felt like a real movie. And the actors feel like they're in a real movie. Like they're acting. They're acting well. Like they're all very good. I've never seen any of these people in anything ever again. Uh, <clears throat> the actor that plays Sanjay, uh, Mike Mathu, 
was only in this film. There you go. He was yeah. good. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, like I the part I had with his acting is what we said earlier with Shyamalan was that he just acts kind of like a thirteen year old, like kind of a wide eyed. Like he doesn't didn't believe it wasn't believable he was a college kid. Yeah. If if he if this was a high school play, a college play, that'd be fine. Why didn't he have the movie to take place in high school? Why did it have to be college? Well, I guess he was twenty two, so if he wanted to be in it, it would have to be college. But you are but if it's a movie, like high school movies is twenties. Like so if you're in your twenties in high school, that's a movie. And then I guess it would make less sense if you had bearded bullies who were seniors in high school and these guys <laughs> are in their fifties. But uh, but yeah, it just I couldn't get over the fact that he dressed like a child <laughs> and acted like one, but was in college with these older guys. It's, just, it's really weird because clearly it was a professionally made, uh, professionally made movie where you know everybody else was cast properly, but there's this weird there's this weird holes in it like that. Yeah. Um, so at the ending. Seems to come out of nowhere. <laughs> so the guy, the main bully that's really been going after him, that gets him drunk and then makes him walk into traffic. Yeah, it's like the scene in Bowfinger where they film Eddie Murphy trying to run across <laughs> <Yeah>. the street. <laughs> uh, he's out with his friends riding around on motorcycles. They accidentally run over a little girl and kill her. And then his friends ditch him. And leave him basically to the mercy of the crowd. Just turn into this mob. And first, they were going to like, they just all beat him up. And then they were going to set him on fire. They brought a gas can out, <laughs> douse him with gasoline. And it's at this point really that, <laughs> that they, it's so intense. It is so dark from this, uh, you know, coming of age, uh, clash of cultures, uh, romance romance movie and that's then dave steps in and he throw he takes the gas can he throws the gas on the crowd around him and then he lights a match and it's like taunts people like you know like you want to set this guy on fire like do you want to get set on fire and everyone kind of comes to their senses and also in that scene, he saves the teacher that was mean to him. <clears throat> yeah, because the, cause, uh, the bully got expelled for cheating. And so then he went on this drunken rampage, killed this child. And then somehow the teacher's there. And so he holds the teacher by knife point. And yeah. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. And then Shyamalan saves him. And then saves the bully from being set on fire. And then, even though this guy killed a child drug driving, everyone just kind of disperses and walks their own way. It's not, <laughs> yeah. it's not like it's really everybody's resolved. There's no cops. It's just sort of like, yeah, I guess we took it a little too far. I guess we should burn. Okay, goodbye. Yeah, Good night. Like See you later. Like the mob at the end of Do the Right Thing. Like, oh, oh did we just do that? Oh, let's, let's just hold on. None of justice is ever served with just him going to jail yeah. for killing this child. So. It's like he, wait, did he just bring peace between the Hindus and the Muslims? He did, Shyamalan did. Because then the movie wraps up fairly quickly after that. Because then yeah. it's sort of like him, uh, you know, he, he, does he pray after that, right? I think so, he does. And there's like this narration of like, this is what I learned. Like, I, you know, like, like this is my, like, this is my real home. Like, I really feel like this is my thing. Yeah. Music builds, and then it cuts to an M. Night Shyamalan film. 
Can you say that when it's your first movie? Uh, sure. Is, isn't it like only there because you're supposed to know who the person is and it's there? Like, I always thought when it's like a blah, blah, blah film, you're supposed to be like, oh, a blah, blah, blah film. I will go see that. I love blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, so I feel like when it's your first movie, can you really, I mean, I guess he did write, produce and direct it. Yeah. I just I always feel it's pretty bold of the filmmaker to do that, like on their first movie. You know, <laughs> especially since in the opening credits it says an M. Night Shyamalan film, but then it lists his name several times with the other things he did. Like, how many times do you need to tell people that you did a thing? A little excessive, I feel. I felt. So he. So I'm assuming that this is somewhat autobiographical. Like, did he go to India as an exchange student at any time in his life? I know, um, and I read some of something about it in the man who heard voices. And then I think online that he did go to India, like his first big trip to India. And this movie is in part based on his, uh, his time there. So like, I can see that that makes sense. Uh, I can see that's why then he wants to star in it because it's his experience. Uh, and I can see how, like, he would be making this movie about a young man experiencing new things, being out of place uh, in his uh, in his life, and then realizing, like, wait, I don't really have an ending for this movie, and then tacking on that thing with the uh, the bully killing the kid, and then him stopping the crowd from burning the bully alive. It really comes out of nowhere. It I, really I really nowhere. was not expecting the movie in that direction. I really thought it was going to be about his relationship with that lady because so much of the first half of the movie is like, gosh, I like this lady so much, man. Like, and like all these little scenes of him, like figuring out and learning, like how do I talk to a lady in this new culture? Like where it's like frowned upon to like, you can't even touch a shoulder without people freaking out. So he starts meeting her every Saturday at this like spot where she like hangs out and then it just sort of wraps up quick of her being like, oh, yeah, I'm already marrying somebody else. Like, it's being arranged. Sorry. And then that's the end of it. And he's just kind of like, oh, man. And, then that's the end. <laughs> and you really thought that that was like the movie going to be about that or it's going to be about like, yeah, with his dad or something like kind of remembering his past or something like that. But like having it to be this sort of like having it be about him and the bully was very unexpected. Uh, and I think not the best choice. I feel like it would have been more interesting if it was more about the relationship with it, the lady or with or with his or more important i think the family would have made the most sense like kind of finding his roots it really would have you know? like you start watching this movie and you think i like oh, this is going to be along the lines of like a garden state an adventure land starter for 10 like rushmore even and for the most part it kind of is and then it seems to forget uh, about uh, his like trying to get in touch with his past and with his father and opts for that dark heroic ending. Also this movie, I feel like is it's about a character that's dealing with his anger issues, but he doesn't really seem to have anger issues. No, I mean, and, and if if he ever does in the movie, it's always justified because it's just like, oh, yeah. these guys are like beating you up. Like, yeah, you'll be angry about that. Like, it's not really, 
you know, and even when he gets kicked out of class or something, he doesn't get angry. He just kind of is like, huh, what happened? Oh, okay. Yeah. And the, like the real story of the, of the fight he got in was that someone was picking on him and like fighting him. And then he decides to finally throw one punch back and he throws one punch back. And it's the most like awesome, powerful punch ever. And knocks the guy out into something else and then sends that guy to the hospital. Like, you know, like uh, that, the, like the ending of Howard's End, you just slap a guy and then he <laughs> he falls into an armoire and the armoire falls on him, something like that. And so you think, well, maybe that's the way he sees things, but really he does have anger issues and that's going to come out. But no, that is really what happened. You know, just one of those things, a guy got hurt more than he intended. And so now everyone thinks that he has like major anger issues and he needs to confront that now to get it out of his system. Yeah. But he, but he doesn't, he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't confront it because it's not there. So not there are these scenes setting that up, but no payoff to that. Yeah, I wonder if he thought it was there, but like the movie just didn't do a good job. Of yeah. Showing it. And well, I mean, if it's all self finance, like his, Parents are the financiers. He's the producer. Who's going to tell him? He should have gotten notes from his parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I felt that some of the dialogue in this was was pretty clunky. Awkward at times, especially the scenes between him and the girl he liked. And uh, at one point, one of the bullies says, well, well, well. <laughs> that's, a bull- that's how you know it's a bully coming up behind you. That's, You're yeah, say, well, well, that's well. something I learned from a commentary on The Adventures of Pete and Pete. The writers say that they made every bully on that show say, well, well, well. So that way you would know for sure <laughs> that person was a bully. Biff Tannen says that too. Classic bully speak. Yeah. Um, there was a, there's a line that made me cringe where I, I think, yeah, it was when he was visiting where his dad grew up. He's in his dad's room and he says something like, this is where my dad dreamed. I remember just being like, oh no, why would you say that? No one, no one would ever say that. Oh, right? Is yeah. That, is that what he said? Yeah, he's, well, he says a lot of things <laughs> like that. Like, he he finally figures out what these bullies are about and what this whole, like, way of life is about. Like, it's about respect. And I'm not leaving till I get some of my own. They and, make him salute. The bullies make him salute them. Yeah. And then there's this part which also doesn't feel like a college scene, but feels like a scene in a, I would even, not even say high school, I would say grade school, where they make him ask the lady if she's kissed anybody. <laughs> and so it's like these people who are supposedly in their mid-20s, early 20s, and it's like the bullies pushing towards this, this group of girls, and he has to sheepishly be like, have you ever, uh, have you ever kissed anybody? And the bullies are like, ah, no, ask her this. And they whisper in his ear, and Shemlin gets all, you know, Dave gets all embarrassed. He's like, no, I, I can't ask that. I can't ask that. So then they're made to cluck like chickens. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know that this is that brutal haze, you know, he's heard about in college, I guess. The uh, asking a girl if you've kissed anybody and then you're made to run around a field. Yeah, it's like cluck a like, it goes cluck like chickens. First encounter. Second encounter. Uh, brutal beating, forced intoxication and being made to walk in traffic. <laughs> And the third one is like knife fights, burning, burning. <laughs> it builds. But uh, yeah, it's it was very yeah. very weird. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah the co- the college was not made to feel very grown up in this movie. It just felt like none of these people had ever gone to college. Maybe college in India is more like high school. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that is the case. But in this movie, it sure makes it seem like it is. Um, yeah, so I, I think overall, I don't think I'm going to remember this movie so well. Like, I feel like in a month, I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, I watched that movie. I don't, I don't remember a lot about it. Like, you know, like it's, there's nothing that memorable. Not, like, there's nothing that's going to stick with you. Not really. Like, yeah, it's not very memorable in terms of it being like a coming of age story because you've seen this kind of story so many times as a modern viewer. And I imagine as someone in 1991, you probably would have seen this story also like, you know, American Graffiti, The Graduates, you know, films like that about a young man finding his place in the world. And there's nothing that that really stands out about the style of the film, about the writing. I mean, I suppose just that it's set in India. And so that would be new for uh, the people I saw in its one week release. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he probably, I mean, I don't doubt that this wasn't like personal to him, but I bet it was also, it was like this, this will be my foot in the door. This will like, this will be, because the early 90s, you're starting to get, like, the indie film. You really movie. are. And so he's, like, hoping that, like, oh, I can be the next whoever. I'll put, like, I will be, you know, the next Wayne Wang. I'll be the next Steven Soderbergh. I'll make this movie on my own, you know, like, with my own money. And I'm going to I'm gonna do all the, I'm going to act it. I'm going to write I'm going to direct it. I'm going to put it in the festival world. And maybe then it will lead to, you know, bigger things. And it didn't, clearly, because then he doesn't make no. anything for over half a decade. I couldn't. Fi- I, I in my research, I couldn't find what he did in that time. I don't know I, how he got from that to the next movie, which is a much bigger budget, and like then kind of in Hollywood. That's a Miramax film. He, I, I can't remember all that well from the one time about a decade ago. I read the Manhood Voices, but I know he got a three picture deal with Miramax. And the first of those films was Wide Awake. Was it because of this movie? I it feel like took... it was because of this movie. You make a movie, you get an agent, you write script. Maybe because I'm guessing he probably had the script for Six Sense or something. But he had yeah. a script for a film. I don't know if he had it this early, but a script called Labor of Love, which is about this man who, after the death of his wife, decides to walk across the United States as a testament of his love. And that was a script that got passed around to a lot of studios. And they're like, oh, this is good. This kid can write. But it has yet to be made. Supposedly, he's making it his next movie with Bruce Willis. Supposedly. And we'll get to that movie by the end of this podcast, I'm sure. So I'd have to assume that Harvey Weinstein saw this somewhere. And was like, yeah, that that kid knows how to make movies. He's Indian. So he's got a good, like, perspective. Sign him. And... The rest is history. <laughs> the rest is history. So it's probably just like six years of meetings and writing and in the hopes that he will, you know, get a bigger break. Yeah. Because if this movie only played for a week, it never even came on home video in America, which is weird because like it felt like in the 90s, every indie movie got dumped on video, no matter the quality or That's what it was. That's how people got exposed to the indie films like Sex, Lies, and Videotape and early Spike Lee movies uh, like Richard Linklater's Slacker. They were all 
those were all films like like the guy, the director is like, I'm going to write this, I'm going to direct it. I'm going to, in Spike Lee's case, and she's got to have it, like, I'm going to star in it. Linklater is in, like, the first 20 minutes of Slacker and, like, puts it out there and it, like, feeds into the zeitgeist. And then those guys, they get, like, you know, Hollywood contracts after that. So I can see how, and this is 1992, so it's the right time. Yeah. For that, he he really got caught up in that like new wave of like grunge indie like filmmakers of the early '90s, but maybe, then didn't have anything. Maybe he just made a bad deal and accidentally only made a deal with British VHS, and was like, "Oh no, <laughs> I meant I meant it to be over here. I guess it'll only be sold in England." Oh well, yeah, I don't know. Um, so I would say overall. If I were to rate this movie between zero and five stars, which I think is the proper star rating system, I will give this one uh, two and a half. That's a two and a half classic two and a half star movie. I uh, I would give it I would give it two stars. Whoa, two stars! Yeah, why? That's I mean, that's a that's a poor rating. That's that's a movie that you, like two and a half is that's run of the mill middle ground. Yeah. Two stars, so, that's leaning towards negative. It uh, This movie drags on. It's an hour and 40 minutes. It should only really be like 80 minutes. How long was it? Did you do a clock in on this? Yeah, the, the, the runtime is like a, like an hour and 44 minutes. Wow. Um, and it feels it. like there, It feels like there's a lot of extraneous stuff in there that could have been trimmed down, make the film tighter. It's not a very focused film. It really isn't. <laughs> but there, it is like it is competently made. It's not like you know the room or anything. Though it kind of felt like it at times. And I think the soundtrack gave it that room sort of quality of that yeah. kind of made on a keyboard, you know, soundtrack. So it's it's not definitely it is in no way terrible, but it, yeah, it's not very memorable, and for long stretches, just wasn't entertaining. So I would I would land on two stars. I did two and a half because like it was fine. Like I, it was a totally fine movie. Like I was not bored with it, but I was not enthralled by it. I was just sort of watching it. I was going along with it, and then it ended, <laughs> and it was fine. So it wasn't the worst. I feel like it was just it was like a perfectly fine movie. I feel like if I watched that, like I said, like in school, I bet yeah, it was fine. The movie's okay. Yeah, it's um. You watch it like at a film festival, and it's like the first movie, and you're eating your breakfast while you're watching. Like you're eating tacos, breakfast tacos at eleven o'clock, and the movie's going on, <laughs> and then the filmmaker's there, and you're like, "That was fine. Oh, that filmmaker seemed nice. Okay, yeah, the two and a half star movie." Yeah, like not not everyone hits it out of the park on their first their first tryout. Like I have yet to make it through Christopher Nolan's Following, which is only like seventy minutes long, but I get very bored. <laughs> And stop watching it. Maybe one day I'll finish it. Um, and he made this while he was a film student. It was his first real movie because before this he made like forty something movies, but like on camcorder with like with his friends and family. So this is like his first real thing. Yeah, if he told me like, oh, this was a student film, and then he like expanded it, I wouldn't be surprised. So I thought it was even better than a regular student film. Like it really okay. felt like a real production. Maybe. That's because it just took place in other countries. You automatically have something more exotic. Well, and if it was just in Philadelphia, you know, like, so maybe 
that just adds to the feel that it's like bigger than it is. Because like a lot of the because like, a lot of the movie is just in apartments and in school. And if that was over here, that might just seem kind of stale. But because it's in India, you're just like, oh, wow, like this is this is different. I feel like that really go the setting really goes a long way. Yeah, a long way for this film. I wouldn't say that India is a character because sets aren't characters. <laughs> <laughs> what if you hadn't seen any other Shyamalan movie, and this is the only one you saw, and you saw it when it came out? What would you think this filmmaker's future was? Like, what would you think the kind of movies he or TV he would be doing? I think, Not knowing where he actually ended up going. I think he would make a lot more films about, uh, about like lost, like dazed uh, young men finding their way in the world. And then maybe something about, you know, a guy in his 30s, like starting a family. Um, it'd be like, <laughs> like indie slice of life type, like comedy dramas. So he could have gone like the Ang Lee route where Ang Lee in the nineties made a few movies that are just about like Asian families and relationships. Like you have, uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Women and The Wedding Banquet, right? Yeah. The other one. And those are about, uh, kind of like his, you know, like you, you can see, they seem autobiographical in a way and they seem like these, like these, they're great movies. And they seem like they're really about something he knows, and it's just like really interesting because like, oh, I've not seen a family movie about the Asian family before. This yeah. is very different. And about and I, Taiwanese people in the uh, Eat Drink Man Woman, like not Chinese, but specifically Taiwanese. Yeah. And uh, so I could see Shemlin having gone that route, like if if he hadn't taken those six years off to try to make it, because he clearly had big dreams of like, I want to be Steven Spielberg. I want to make big movies. That he could have made, I'm sure from this movie, could have gotten enough money raised from his parents again <laughs> to make more things about sort of like his, what he knows, sort of like uh, I could have seen that could be in this whole wave of like kind of early 90s films about like Indian American, uh, you know, families and you know, relationships. But he didn't, he didn't do that. Yeah. It would have, it would have been interesting to see if he had done it, if he had built on this and made a better second movie still kind of going into like kind of this differences of cultures between America and Indian or what it's like to be here as uh, as a person uh, from India. But he didn't. He, he took a long break and held out for like giant big things. So the interesting, if he does actually make, uh, what was the name of this? Script? Labor of Love. Labor of Love. Because if it was written after this movie, I wonder if it'll feel more like this type of movie like if it will be like a like a step back but maybe in an interesting way that like it's more about these people and more about like kind of relationships and like more personal because i would not describe shamlin as a personal filmmaker i would not even which is why this was kind of interesting this is why like i kind of was interested because like oh it's like actually him not just making this cold you know hollywood film or something like that or some big effects thing it's really about just about people like that's all it's about it's just about people and i'm glad you that's my dog walking through uh, <laughs> the dining room uh i'm glad you brought eat drink man woman because that's a movie where it's about the characters it's about people and their interactions and it's one of those movies that doesn't really have a plot to it it's just about these people mm -hmm. and uh praying with anger doesn't really have a plot uh it's just about this character so i can see like I could imagine that being his vein of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. 
I yeah. So we'll never know what he could have done if he kept making these little movies. But next week, we will do his first over million millions of dollar movie starring that Rosie O'Donnell, Rosie O'Donnell. in like the late nineties. She was like really big then. Yeah. Uh, it's the height of Rosie O'Donnell, uh, <laughs> superstardom. Uh, yeah, called Wide Awake. Uh, I've never seen it, so I'm excited to. I've never seen it. Watch it and either. see because it's the other. It's the other. I feel this was the one he buried even more harder than Praying with Anger because Praying with Anger he can like kind of proudly be like I made my first movie. I went to India, but Wide Awake is definitely one that I feel like people pretend it didn't exist. Yeah, because it came out so close to the Sixth Sense. One year before. One year before. So it'll be interesting to see also sort of like his growth as a filmmaker, having taken six years off just to write. I predict, and we'll see if I'm... Have you ever seen it? No, never seen it. I predict it's going to be a lot better because if you're just writing for six years, you're really learning a lot about structure and like just how to really... Like I feel he can he'll be more focused and it'll have more of a, like, you know, like better characters and it'll feel more like a real, real movie. I could be wrong, <laughs> we'll but yeah. that's what I—that's what I predict. Because we've seen where he goes. Yeah, like, he gets to be really, you know, good and uh, successful as as a filmmaker. And this, uh, you know, not to slag on his first movie too hard, but you can see a lot of improvement has been made. <laughs> and maybe that's just due to having a better cinematographer. Who knows? I bet I think he also learns quite a bit uh, as a writer. Uh, and an actor's performances do get better. <laughs> they do. It's like if you watch um, if you watch Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, Paul Rudd's first movie actually says, and introducing Paul Rudd. Uh, he, you watch that movie, and your reaction is, wow, Paul Rudd has really come far as an actor. <laughs> Not that he's bad in that movie, but there has been noticeable significant improvements. Yeah, so I guess it's probably for him, for Shyamalan, a good thing that this movie did not have a big, you know, uh, debut. Because I think if it was... Cause it, like, what if this movie was a hit? Who knows what path he would have gone down. I'm guessing he would be just directing television <laughs> right now. I don't think it would have led to big things. But because he took the time to kind of go in a different direction... Uh, now he's the person that we know who he is. Uh, yeah, very, I, I, I can see this being a movie that could have led to episodes of Touched by an Angel, like, right? Yeah, he made this movie. It was a hit, kind of, but like not a huge hit, but like hit enough where Hollywood Video bought two copies of it and uh, mistakenly put it in the foreign film section, even though it was made by someone in America. And then you, he makes one other movie. And then you're like, what happened to that guy? And you look up his filmography, and it's like, oh, he's directing, you know, Touched by, he directed Touched by an Angel, yeah. and, uh, yeah. Dr. Quinn. Dr. Quinn, and, uh, oh, NCIS, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's the route of a lot of uh, early 90s indie filmmakers. You see, like, this kind of, not a huge big movie, but big enough that I remember reading about it in Entertainment Weekly. And then a second movie, it wasn't even as big, but had a bigger star in it. Like the second movie had Eric Stoltz in it. And then the rest of the filmography is just, you know, like not even HBO shows, but like Showtime, the lesser <laughs> HBO. Uh, <laughs> Showtime, good, not great, is uh, their motto, I believe. <laughs> and so we're going to, I think in future episodes of this rate, sort of the movies 
uh, over which like where we think we're going to eventually by the end of this whole thing have our favorite Shyamalan all the way down to our least favorite Shyamalan yes. and everything in between. So so far this is the only movie, so we don't really have anything to compare to. So I'm going to say yeah, this is the best Shyamalan movie so far. <laughs> is this one? He seems like a nice young kid, and I'm glad he made his move his first movie, and it was you know decent. Yeah, good for him. He he might be going places. So I guess <laughs> you can send your complaints to our uh, email. Yeah, it's uh, uh, <laughs> it's vmnightshift at gmail.com. Uh, let us know. I, I doubt anyone has seen this movie. But if you have and you have opinions, I think we missed anything. Uh, if you've seen Wide Awake and uh, want to want us to talk about something specific about that, uh, please write in. Yeah. Is there a dot after M? Is it M dot night shift? Or no, just it's M? All, it's one big jumble. All one jumble. Okay. Mnightshift.gmail.com. All right. And we will not uh, deal with any like online 35-year-old bearded bullying. So don't, don't bully us <laughs> if you're older and have a beard like in this movie. So yeah. just only let's all be friends. As we <laughs> mentioned at the top of the show, we both are video store clerks at Vulcan Video here in Austin. If you are in the Austin area, please do come by, rent a movie, just like the good old days. Yeah. We're still going strong. Uh, Vulcan Video has a lot of uh, screenings we do in the community, so uh, check the Vulcan Video Facebook page for information on that. I have a blog where I write about movies occasionally, uh, cinemathenandnow.blogspot.com. And Brian, you're working on some like actual projects. Working on, I, I stay away from the internet, you know, like the plague. Uh, so you will not find anything by me on the internet. But uh, hope, hopefully, maybe uh, you'll see a TV or a movie or something that yeah. we're working on. Something, something interesting. Uh, currently working on a second edition of our Distro uh, Movies book, where I, where I had to watch another. Hundreds of movies. An encyclopedia of punks. Encyclopedia of every punk and every movie ever. And actually, in this movie, there's not a punk in it, but at the beginning, the host family is worried that Shemlin will be a punk. There's a part where they're like, oh no, he better not be one of those kids with like multicolored hair and a pierced ear. And then when he shows up, the camera lingers on his ear like the POV of the mom being like, okay, good, he doesn't have a pierced ear. Okay, he's not one of those punk kids. That mother was so funny. She was (laughs) so good. She was so worried about. She did not want them to know that they had any nice things in the house. Ready? Hide all the nice things, um, all the silly. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for listening to this. This is our very first podcast, so I feel we will get stronger and better with every episode as, yes, we, as like, we learn more. Like Shyamalan, like let's just Shyamalan. say we are like Sh- this is our praying with anger. This is like this is the best we can do right now, and it's pretty good, and it's better than most things. But soon. Uh, we will just be like even better. We'll get that Weinstein money, and this is we're gonna have like such fancier yeah. everything. We'll be doing this in gold suit. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and uh, tune in next time for for Wide Awake. Shyamalan twist.